Welcome to another edition of the TSN MMA Show. I'm your host, Aaron Bronstetter, joined at Bazooka MMA uh, by Bazooka himself, Joe That's Valvolini. It. Nice to have you back, Joe. Yeah, it's good to see you, Aaron. I'm still sweaty here from training like always, so um, don't mind the sweat. I, ne- I never working. do. I never do. You're, you're working hard. I'm just sitting here in, in a cold basement doing Nice this. air conditioning. Yeah, very well, nice. I don't know. I got to keep the AC off now. I got to save some money here since the gym's been closed for so long. Yeah, we got to get the uh, the government to take care of that. So uh, I know. Don't get with, me ranting here, Aaron. With stage two, though, ranting. are you are you allowed to open up tomorrow? Uh, or today? No. no? In Toronto, they have us in stage three, which okay. is very frustrating because I don't feel like social distancing is a thing anymore in society. And with everything going on, I feel like our gyms could do it safer and better than most of the grocery stores I'm seeing, a lot of the restaurants and Tim Hortons I'm going to. So um, it's been a frustrating process. I'm not sure how many times Mr. Ford has been in a martial arts gym or a gym in general. So I think if he knew um, exactly how safe and how clean martial artists are, how respectful of a community we are, we'd be one of the best and safest places to open. Shots fired at him never being in a gym. What's that about, Joe? Are you body shaming uh, Doug Ford? Well, I'm going to have to since he's not allowing me to make a living anymore. I have to throw some jabs back at him. Let right. us eat over here, Mr. Ford. Okay, well, I'm sure, I'm sure he's, uh, he's listening. You know, he wants to, uh, to help uh, the province, yeah. but you're, you're right. I mean, I, I saw that like, I saw that, like uh, health spas and like saunas and stuff like that aren't opening, and that kind of makes sense to me. Jim's, like you said, if you're following a strict protocol, you could pro- you could probably make it work in a safe fashion. Yeah, but if you have to understand, a gym, or a martial arts gym, is so different than LA Fitness, than Good Life Fitness. Those are a lot of random people going in, touching things. Like I'm talking about opening with social distance squares where no one's sharing equipment. You're in your own little six foot box that's away from everybody. You're not touching anything. You're just working out. I'm going by. You know, I'm seeing um, the beaches, Woodbine beaches packed. I'm looking at basketball courts with hundreds of people playing basketball with zero social distancing. So, I mean, at this point, we got to understand that, one, people aren't following the social distancing. And it's not fair to all of these, you know, gyms and small businesses that aren't allowed to open yet. Well, you've uh, you've made your case on that one. I th- I think that uh, you're right. You probably could do it in a safe in a safer fashion. I'm I'm more worried about a lot of the other people that aren't as responsible as you, Joe. Yeah, I mean, I'm literally going into Tim Hortons and buying coffees, and the six foot stay six foot away. We're like four feet away, you know, like, and we're crossing aisles. I mean, it's it's over. We have to understand that it's too hard to control. You sign a waiver to come in. I think everyone should be fine. If I'm, I'm not going to be letting 85 year olds come into my gym and because they're at risk. Risk, but the population in a martial arts gym is between 18 years old and 40. That is not the issue that we're dealing with. And if you sign a waiver and everyone's okay with it, anyways, it should be all right. Yeah, I guess. I mean, if, I guess if you're signing a legal waiver, you wouldn't be held liable for anything that happened. But let's let's uh, move on to something that you also do, which is coaching. Is a, a yeah. subject that has been very uh, much discussed. And before I get your take on it, because you are the coach and your opinion matters a lot more than mine does in terms of what a corner should do and how a corner interacts with their athletes, yeah. I'd like to, to give you my, uh, my take on it, if, if, if you will. Yeah, let me hear it. All right, so my first impression when I watched it was that 
Drysdale was not in the wrong. He has a minute to inspire his student to get his head back in the game. He's Roscoff is saying, you know, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I'm done. He might have heard Roscoff say this in the gym before, right? Like he knows Max Roscoff better than me, you, anyone else. And for a minute, he has one minute to get him to get his head back in the game. That's his job as his coach. His coach, as as his coach, is to teach him, it's to motivate him, it's to get, allow him to be in a situation to win. Now, one judge gave Roscoff the first round, two gave uh, his opponent Austin Hubbard the, the first round, and then, of course the the second round was probably a ten eight round on some cards. I don't, I don't know what what the final tally was, but I mean Roscoff was mostly out of it. But even if he does that third round and loses, which is the likely scenario that would have happened, or gets finished, I think that the damage that's done to his career from him not being willing to, to participate in that third round, from, from bowing out, that his coach knows that that is far more damaging to his long-term prospect as a martial artist than if he goes in there, finishes out the third round, and loses a decision. Um, so I think that what Drysdale did, he took a minute, he tried to get him back in the game. As soon as the round was about to start, he looked at the official and said he doesn't want to continue. He said it. You know, he knows that his that his uh, fighter at that point was compromised to a point where he, he was not able to get his head back in the game. He was not able, you know, they, they were debating it, they were going back and forth. At that point in time, Roscoff, he knows, is not going to be willing to, to continue. That's when he says to the official he doesn't want to continue. He did the responsible thing eventually. But what people see is they see Roscoff say nine times, I want out, I want out, and him saying, no, you're a champ, you're a champ, you can do this. And, and they automatically say, well, he should have stopped the fight right there and then. But like I keep saying, he has a minute. If he can't get his fighter to change his tune within a minute, then he has to make the decision on whether or not his fighter should continue. And he said to the official, he doesn't want to continue. They asked him, Max, do you want to continue? He said no. And at that point, they stopped the fight. I personally think that what Drysdale did is being way overblown. So as a coach, I'm curious if you agree with me or if you think I'm way off. No, I agree with you. One, because if you look at Drysdale's credential as a fighter, as a coach, um, his experience in martial arts, he's someone that's probably been in martial arts longer than anyone, you know, explaining the situation. So he knows the fight game really well. Um, so, yes, it's like even getting knocked down, you know, in kickboxing or in boxing. If you get knocked down, you have a count to get up. A lot of fighters pop right back up and want to get back in there and fight. But you have, you know, eight seconds to take your time, slowly get up, catch a breath. But some people don't take that time. It's like getting a low, low blow. You can kind of jump in or you can take your time. So the right approach is to take a full minute to decide. If he comes in and I'm done and you called it right away, that that's a terrible corner. Job. His job is a situation. So I understand based on his experience, him knowing the fighter and taking the full time to decide and to try to talk his fighter into it, knowing the damage, like you said, you know, probably being worse. I, I think he did the right job waiting to the last moment to decide. Um, is he going to come back? And I, I think the key is the individual. Everyone is different. One, there's the stereotype around fighters. Never give up. Like you looked at poorly in the sport even if you tap you know like make get your arm to break before tap or get knocked out go on your shield so that's the you know mindset of martial artists and fighters going into fight but now everyone is different not the sport has changed a little bit from you know the the, the mark coleman's the smashing machines the mark kerr's the bare fist knuckles 
the sport has changed a little bit into more of a sport rather than a brutal just bleed that we went through. So we have to understand that if everyone's going to be different, there's a little bit of new school in martial arts. And if he's not going to continue, I mean, I think the spirit, the fighting spirit shows a lot. So I get it's fine that he gave up, but I just think it's still looked at so badly in the sport. Would I ever put myself in a situation where I gave up? No, but I'm also not him. And I don't want to say now that he's looked poorly upon it, but me as an athlete, I would have never said that. But I think I would be okay and receptive if some of my fighters did want out. So, I mean, I think it comes down to the individual at the end of the day. Now, I'm going to throw some names at you. I want you to tell me what immediately comes to mind when I say this name. Anthony Pettis. Anthony Pettis, tough, durable, veteran. Nate Marquardt. Um, Same thing, tough. Uh, aggressive, big hitter, fight anybody. Max Roskopf. Max Roskopf. Don't know enough about him. New. Never heard of him. Um, from what I understand, new contender. So here's the so here's, here's the, the reason contender. I'm here's the reason I'm giving you those three names because I'm hearing people comparing this situation to oh well Duke Rufus saw that Anthony Pettis's hand was broken and he he called the fight off. Trevor Whitman saw that Nate Marquardt was done and he called the fight off. There's such a big difference between a 5-0 and fighter who's trying to get his feet on the ground in the sport and trying to establish his career than a guy like Nate Marquardt, who at that point in time was basically at the end of his career. He said, I'm done. Whitman calls off the fight. Anthony Pettis, broken hand. He doesn't, he doesn't even want the fight to get called off, and Rufus calls the fight off. Everybody is comparing Drysdale to Duke Rufus and Trevor Whitman, but these are different situations. We've got two guys. We have a former, two former champions. We've got Nate Marquardt. I believe he was a, was, Marquardt was a former Strike Force champion, I think. I might be wrong think, on that. And you also, sure he was. Yeah. yeah. And you've also got um, Anthony Pettis, a former champion, uh, former lightweight champion in the UFC. People are comparing Roscoff's situation to those guys. It's a, it's a different situation because A, you've got one guy has a broken hand in Pettis, but he's also established himself where if, if you call off his fight, people are going to be like, well, Anthony Pettis is a quitter or anything along those lines. Marquardt, at that point in time in his career, he's a veteran. He's done, he's done just about everything. He knocked out Demian Maya inside of a minute. Like he's, he's got some incredible accolades. Nobody's going to be like, oh, well, Marquardt's the guy that quit in between rounds late in his career. Roscoff, when you hear his name now, the first thing you're going to think about is that's the guy that quit on the stool. And that's, and Drysdale knows that that is the stigma that he's going to have to carry with him now as his career continues. Because if he loses his next UFC fight, if they give him a next UFC fight, he's going to be out of the yeah. promotion for years. He's, he'll have to win 10 in a row on the regional scene or win a championship in LFA or something like that in order to get back into the promotion. Drysdale knows all of that. Like These are things you don't think this crosses his mind when he's trying to, to sure. motivate his fighter to get back in there. His fighter's dream is to be a UFC champion one day. And that's why he's saying, champ, you're a champ. You know, So that's why I think that a lot of the different comparisons that are being made to different coaches are irrelevant in this situation. I think that uh, you're, you're comparing apples to oranges. And I think that, again, I think that Drysdale, in my opinion, did the right thing in that situation. And then you look at guys like Anthony Smith with Mark Montoya. And um, there was another fighter of Mark Montoya. He was fighting Mike Davis. I can't remember which fighter it was. Um, it wasn't Austin Hubbard. He's, he's in Denver. But there was another fighter that was basically getting destroyed by Mike Davis. And they, they made him go out there for the third round. Like That's probably a more accurate comparison than an Anthony Pettis or a Nate Marquardt. 
But wasn't Marquardt, my understanding, it was Whitman who called the fight, right? He didn't physically say or, you know, I want out. So I think that's what it is, him giving up. But what's wrong to say, like, I can't win. Like, I, I don't feel it. I'm lost. Like, I don't think it's really bad for him to say it. It's like, I can go out there. I don't have the fighting spirit. I can take more damage. And then what? I mean, he's he's obviously lost. So I don't think it's wrong what he did and i hope it's not looked at so poorly like sometimes it's just not your day and it's not like a soccer game or a basketball game if it's just not your day means you get knocked out you get cte you get more brain damage you're on the shelf longer sometimes it's it's like you're a 5 and 0 prospect you're getting good i just think it's the outside look at it that's that's bad i mean this is it's like thought process like this is keeping you know more brain damage in the sport like if the guy wants to give up i get it yeah, I mean, I, I've he, got. He'll probably don't get me he'll wrong. never be your champion. I've got though. no problem he'll never with him. Be your champion. I've got no problem with him giving up. I, I, I absolutely have no yeah. problem. But I also have no problem with how his coach handled it. That's the point I'm trying to make. Oh, absolutely. The reason why yes, his coach yes. is trying to motivate him is because he knows that now people are going to look at him in this way, and even his future opponents are going to be like, "Well, I can make this guy quit," and and you'll have a bit of a mental leg up on him. But if he were to have gone out there in the third round. Uh, you know, even if he would have lost, people wouldn't have thought about him in that manner. Now, whether or not that's fair, you know, he, his manager said he had turf toe. His manager, um, you know, said it's a big opportunity to come into UFC. Sh- you know, short notice fight, took it. Maybe uh, maybe he shouldn't have taken it. But um, his coach knows that he needs to inspire his fighter to keep going. That's his job. And then if he's unable to do that at that point, that's when you call the fight off. And that's what happened. Yeah, right at the last minute. It took him that full minute to try. It didn't work. I mean, I think he did great. I think, like you said, the the coaching was right. I just hope the stigma behind, you know, if, if it's not your day sometimes, it's not your day. But it's also not the time to to sit there and on your debut, you waited your whole life for it. Sometimes you got to really take those opportunities, right? Like you said, Drysdale knew that. It's just a frustrating scenario. Because the kid is such a young prospect, he'll probably will be a good contender. He probably learned so much from this and I don't know. I just hope we're starting to look at the sport a little bit differently. For sure. And I think that that's now up to Max. Max knows how good he is. He was an ACC champion in wrestling. He's got great credentials. And Dana White was saying, you know, uh, Brian Butler, his manager, was trying really hard to get him into the UFC um, because he knows how good he is. And uh, I think that he is a good, talented kid. We saw some glimpses in the first round. Yeah, I'm also seeing now, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm also seeing now because of the current, you know, COVID situation, there's a lot of opportunities for a lot of people to step up last minute or close opportunities. So you're going to get some mixed matches a lot, in, I think, in this corona time. Well, I mean, let's also keep in mind that Roskopf was the favorite, he was a two-to-one favorite entering the fight, right? So, yeah. you know, people can say, oh, it was a mismatch. He didn't belong in there. Well, obviously, the perception was such that Austin Hubbard, who opened as the underdog in that fight, there was enough perception that Roscoff was the real deal that the line not only flipped but went way in the other direction. I mean, a lot of it came down to experience, I believe. Hubbard's had a lot more time in, in, as a professional, but still, there's been times where, you know, the 5-0 and guy comes in and knocks out the experienced fighter. So... I mean that's the that's the sport that's the risk 
that's what you take. And I mean, it's not for softness anymore. It's more, it's for the hardest of the hard, the men of the men die on your shield, get brain damage. That's what it's become down to. So, I mean, we still got to understand it's a sport, take the losses, but it's frustrating. And I get this problem is like, I'm almost in the middle. I see both sides. I agree with Drysdale, but I, I'm okay with him giving up, but I'm also not okay with him giving up. So it's, it's kind of like, I'm all over the place. You're okay with him giving I'm up. You just, fence, you just wouldn't have done it. Fence. Yeah. No, I wouldn't have done it. I would have probably done what Drysdale did to kind of encourage my fighters. Like I've, I've had fighters cut weight, and they're in the bathtub going, no, I can't do it. I get out. I got to get out. I'm going to die. I'm fainting. Just sit in there. We got five more minutes. Just sit in there. You'll be fine. Breathe. Like I'm encouraging them to kind of stay in the bathtub a little bit more. But that could be a terrible situation too. Maybe he is really going to belt to faint, but you force your guys. You're encouraging them. Come on. We can do this. Like. It's it's just that mentality within the sport. It's like military mentality a lot of times. Yeah, and I had mentioned on last week's show that uh, Hubbard, in his previous fight against Marco Madsen, who was an Olympic wrestler, looked really good towards the end of that fight. And I thought that it was going to be a little bit too much too soon for Roscoff because even though he had good wrestling credentials, he didn't have Olympic wrestling credentials, and Hubbard looked good yeah. against an Olympic wrestler. Yeah, I mean, he's got the potential. And I mean, maybe in his mind now he's like, I don't want to be looked at as the guy who gave up, and that motivates him to come back and to, to shut everybody up. He gets on a string of finishes and does his thing, so maybe he uses this to fuel him. He's still very early in his career. And it's for that reason that I really hope that the UFC gives him another chance to prove oh, that that was sure. an anomaly and that he w- went into it injured. It was short notice. Like, if you're going to give these guys short notice fights and they don't perform, you have to give them another chance with a full camp. Exactly. But this is what it, this is what kind of makes me nervous with this Dana White contender series. Yes, it's a great opportunity for guys to go in, but what if you don't perform well that night and then boom, one shot, one bad night, you're never in the UFC, even though you're a, a talented prospect or or wherever you are. But that's to me is like very nerve wracking to have that one opportunity on that show. Well, two weeks pr- ago we had uh, Maria Ag- uh, Agapova, who I think is from Kazakhstan. She won her debut, looked great against Hannah Cyphers. She actually had lost in the contender series. So you can still bounce back and, and end up back in the UFC. But you do need to go back to the regional scene and uh, win one or two. And to try to work. And it's the same thing. Even, I mean, it's just the way the sport is. I mean, even a lot of guys, um, newer fighters now, are really hesitant to move into, like, the Bellator way because it might kind of make it a harder path to the UFC. And, I mean, a lot of organizations now are even putting – fighters on long-term contracts because they don't want to be the UFC's B-League. So they're kind of forcing fighters into these long-term contracts, which yeah, and is I spoke, frustrating. I spoke to a manager of somebody who I think belongs on the Contender Series, a top prospect, and uh, they said that they believe that, that, that the prospect should perhaps try to win a title on the regional scene and get in that way rather than through the Contender Series because I think for the same reason, like you said, it's a bit of a risky proposition to try to win that way. Yeah, but even the regional scenes, I mean, every region has different talent. If you're going to fight somewhere, maybe in Florida with all the good talent, it might be harder. Or, or But still, you need your local talent wherever you put shows on. I mean, I just think it's uh, they seem to be a little bit, I don't know, it's like some ways are so much easier for some and difficult for others. I mean, I guess that's just the nature of the sport based on your manager, where you're training, your team. It just seems like it's been harder and harder for Canadians to get on. Yeah, well, it's also a visa issue. Look, this weekend, Kyle Nelson was supposed to be competing um, against Sean Woodson and uh, ended up getting pulled from the car because they couldn't get him a P1 visa in time. Yeah, I mean, Sean, that was a tough fight, too. Sean Woodson's awesome. 
Yeah, now Julian Arosa stepping in. And the thing I love about that fight is, like, Arosa and Woodson are so similar, which is what's going to make it a really exciting fight. I mean, Woodson's like a 4-1 to favorite in that fight. But I think that stylistically, they're, they're quite similar. Yeah, and he trains with uh, James Vick. And I remember his last fight, I was just so impressed with the way he he fought and makes up that I ended up following him on uh, social media. So, yeah, his last fight made a made me a, a fan of his. Yeah, very uh, interesting, unorthodox style for sure. Um, so Curtis Blades, main event against Alexander Volkov. And uh, Alexander Volkov, I think, proved my point that I think that he is like the next guy after that top four in the heavyweight division with Stipe, Cormier, Blades, and Francis. I think that Volkov is like the next guy. He's at the top of the next tier. Um However, I don't understand why Curtis Blades is getting heat for the way that he performed. He said he was going to ragdoll him, and if you want to, if you want to come up with the definition of ragdolling someone, it's taking a guy down like eleven times in a fight. That's what you do to a ragdoll—you throw it around. Um, now yeah. he didn't finish him, uh, but I, I think that the criticism towards him, when his mindset is the, you know, if, if there's a fifty-fifty chance I win the fight on the feet and an eighty percent chance I win the fight. If there's grappling involved, and he sides with the higher probability, I don't know how you can get on a guy for that. Yeah, I think it's just back to the sport being an entertainment sport. Everyone likes stand-up. Why, I could say all the time, isn't kickboxing big enough? If everybody wants to see striking, watch kickboxing. But, uh, no, I mean, what I say, Ragdoll, yes, he dominated on the ground. I mean, I heard a point from... Uh, uh, Daniel Cormier is talking about being ragdoll. He's like, eh, I wouldn't really call it ragdolling, like based on his standard. But for me, I'm with you. I'm not no Olympic wrestler, so he got ragdoll to me. But uh, I mean, I just one Volkov's takedown defense looked pretty terrible as well. I think he was just kind of got exposed a little bit. But Curtis Blade's gonna give everyone a tough time. I mean, I just think the excitement value wasn't there so it might take him a little longer to that title shot because you got someone like francis just waiting yeah and i mean with the um the cormier and stipe situation i think you kind of have to see how that plays out but to me there's only one opponent that makes sense for curtis blaze and i think it's jair rosenstrike i think that's a fight you make to see who's who's going to be established as like the next the next guy in line after francis i mean they've both lost to francis but rosenstrike was on a bit of a tear before that why not see how he does against blades I think Blades, again, same kind of, his wrestling is too strong for someone like Rosenstruck. I think Rosenstruck's better to put someone like with Volkov or to make it more exciting where you can get the big guys just kind of fighting on the feet. But I think Blades' wrestling's too strong for most of these guys. And they just put together this kind of meaningless fight between uh, Derek Lewis and Alexei Olenek, uh, which I don't really understand. Like, why, why make that fight when Derek Lewis is number five? Why not have Lewis and Blades fight each other? Yeah, I mean, even uh, Derek Lewis, I mean, again, like if the excitement value, he, he goes he goes for the, the knockout. So, I don't know. I think Curtis Blades is in his own category right now. And I think with his wrestling, it's just no one really has the potential to, to wrestle with him right now in the heavyweights. Yeah, I, I mean, think, outside I, of DC, who's going to retire now? Like, I mean, who else can hang with him when it comes to the grappling? Yeah, I think so too. But the the issue is he's lost twice to Francis. So in order for him to yeah, establish himself him as a contender, is he just needs to keep beating all these other guys. He needs to keep beating lower tier opponents. And unfortunately, that's the nature of the beast right now. Because if if Stipe ends up beating Cormier and ends up not retiring, or even if Cormier wins and retires and Stipe wants to stick around, like the logical next fight, regardless of what happens in that fight, if Stipe doesn't retire, is Stipe versus Francis, the, the sequel. 
And I'm also finding it interesting that a lot of these light heavyweights seem to be moving up to heavyweight as well. Well, Gustafsson's I mean, kind of the wild card. I mean, Gustafsson, Gustafsson if, if he does well, me. yeah, if he does well against Fabrizio Verdum, he'll suddenly be established as a, a in title contention. I would think right away. Yeah, that's who I think like with the Rosenstruck could be good with even a Volkov. Like, I mean, that's a guy who could stand well, is tall, big. I'm very interested. And what did I just see recently too? Uh, Gian Volante against the Crochet Boss. That's this like, weekend, that's yeah. Another. Crazy. I mean. Um, just a lot of these light heavyweights. I saw one more I'm thinking of as well. One more that I can't remember stepping up. But, I mean, good on them. We saw uh, Ovin St. Prude. I mean, Actually, why not? Ovin's just stepped up to heavyweight. Maybe that's who you're thinking of, Ovin's. Yeah, I thought there was one more I saw that was upcoming, but I know uh, he did as well. Just, I don't know, too many fight announcements happening, too yeah, quick, there too are. fast. I <laughs> there can't really even are. remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there absolutely are. <laughs> <laughs> and even when I just look on the fight card, I was like, that fight's on the card? Like, I, I don't even know because they're just popping up out of nowhere, especially this fight island and not fight island. And it's just, I think it's just a wild time. Well, with fight island, uh, the thing that I am confused about is, like, there are a lot of different fights that have been falling out at the apex at the last minute. They've been getting all these late notice replacements. Like, are they going to bring fighters down to fight island just as backups? Are they going to have people that have someone in their corner that can compete like if fights are falling out in fight island like you're basically stranded on fight island you're stranded on fight island joe <laughs> yeah. what are you taking from fight island seems like it's the smart move are the fighters excited about it what's that what's the vibe yeah, i think i think everybody's kind of excited about it. i think the perception was that there was going to be like this octagon on the beach it was going to be like a resort town none of that really came to fruition it's in abu dhabi they've had events on yaz island before so it's not like this new phenomenon but um i do think that for the international fighters that are unable to get to the u.s to compete and i'm confused now because you just had volkov at the apex from russia you have dan hooker from uh new zealand at the apex this weekend like, how is Dan Hooker going to get back into New Zealand? That's my big question. Like, if I'm if I'm New Zealand and I have no cases, pretty much, like they've had, I think like, they've had, they've had three back? cases recently because they had um, two women from the UK came to New Zealand and had the virus. Like, they they had basically eradicated the coronavirus from New Zealand, and they're somehow letting him go to America, whereas like there's people are at the casinos yeah. right now in Las Vegas, and like I don't know how they're going to allow him back into the country. I, I'm so confused. Like back to our first conversation. My gym still isn't open, and people are flying between countries and allowed to open gyms and fights, and I still can't even open my gym door. So, I mean, I don't get what's going on. Everyone's all over the place. Are you allowed to have up to 10 people at the gym if they're not there for business purposes? Like, if you were just to train people individually, are you allowed to do that or no? Uh, I don't know. Still no. Because then the other thing is, it's another rant to mine, each individual person has to be a member of some sanctioning body of the sport, which means, is it about distance or is it about dollar value, So, which also frustrates me as well. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that are, are just frustrating. I mean, I think I can do a, a group outside of 10 people, but my gym is too big to be small group classes. That's not what the, a martial arts place is about. But like, if I, if I came classes of nine people, I need 20 hours of classes a day to satisfy everyone. But what I mean is like if I drove 15 minutes to your gym now and, and just like came and hit pads with you, am I allowed to do no. that? No, not yet. Okay, well, not yet. You'd have to be a member of the sports 
program to do it. You'd have to be a WACO member, and from there you would be able to train. Yeah, I mean it's just so it's it's so weird. That is a it's terrible so organization weird. name. Wacko. Yeah, that's, that's just not good. Yeah, you, world Wacko. <laughs> so each basically put it this way: each martial art has its own sanctioning. So kickboxing has Wacko, Muay Thai has Muay Thai Ontario. Then there's boxing Ontario, and then I don't know who MMA uses. I'm sure the probably the Ontario Athletic Commission. If yeah. it's a jujitsu school, same thing, have their own on jujitsu Ontario or whatever it's called. So everything is, everyone's doing their own thing. But put it this way, boxing gyms are allowed to open right now in a certain capacity, but not kickboxing. So I don't know. Just explain the same situation as you're allowed the UFC professionally, but you're not allowed kickboxing professionally in Ontario. So Ontario, for some reason, doesn't like kickboxing. Doug Ford doesn't like it. He doesn't know it and he doesn't like it. He doesn't let he never let me fight professionally here, and he's not letting me open my gym in stage two, which is a mistake. So, so obviously, I'm angry about it, Aaron. I can't get over it. So when you vote in the next election, are you going to like specifically reach out to the candidates and ask them for their take on kickboxing? I think so. I should be put in that position. I should be sitting there where Mr. Ken Hayashi was. At least I understand what's going on in the sport. I don't understand how a government is still allowing MMA and not kickboxing. Does anyone even know who's? Any sense. Does anyone even know who's running the the like athletic commission? I don't right even now? know if they'll put anyone in. I think they're just literally because apparently with the new ruling, once kickboxing gets legal, you won't need a sanctioning body to run your events. It'd be one under the Ontario sanctioning. So right now, I have to pay Wacko in order to run an event where eventually I can just go run it myself based on the government rules, which yeah. is the unified rules of kickboxing, which makes sense, but that's not there yet. So right now these sanctioning bodies are basically taking money from us. So, so this, sorry if, if you guys are hearing this wacko, but it's true. <laughs> so this weekend, uh, Dan Hooker is facing Dustin Poirier. Someone put out a really interesting stat on Twitter yesterday, which is that, Every opponent in his professional career that has beaten Paul Felder has lost their next fight, which is pretty wild. But uh, <laughs> do you think that Dan Hooker is going to continue that trend this weekend? I don't know, man. Dan Hooker, this is this fight has me mixed because I think Hooker's great, but I think he takes big shots once in a while. And if Poirier lands one of his big power punches on you, you're in trouble. Um, I think this is an interesting fight. Um, I don't know who I'm leaning towards. I think I'm going to go. I'm thinking slight edge to Poirier, to be honest with you. I think his experience, his power, but Hooker's got that diversity in his striking, his reach, his, you know, his unorthodox uh, a little bit more than Poirier would be, but I think Poirier gets it done. This is certainly an interesting one because it's, it's five rounds, um, and we saw how he looked against Felder. Um, Dan Hooker and I, a lot of people thought Felder won that fight but it was it was a close fight and I think this is going to be a close yeah. fight too I think this is going to be a close fight that oh, goes yeah. five rounds um, I'm with you I kind of lean Dustin Poirier but I certainly yeah. think that Dan slight. Hooker I'm telling you it's yeah. slight I'm and if Dan, Dan Hooker wins this fight I think that a fight with Tony Ferguson should be next and uh, well I mean whoever wins this fight I think should fight uh, Ferguson next just to advance the division a little bit yeah. I think they did uh Dan Hooker really bad by the picture they put on his poster, to be honest with you. I haven't seen it, or at least I, when I did uh, see it, I didn't notice anything. They have him in some mean-looking face. It doesn't doesn't suit him. It doesn't <laughs> suit him. 
just doesn't suit poor Dan Hooker. Not well, his best picture. I'm talking to him later on in the show, so I can ask him what yeah, he thinks of the picture. I, I, yeah, he'll be upset about it. I guarantee you he'll be upset about that picture. <laughs> yeah. You could probably even see it. I'll, I'll give you a little flash. Oh, yeah, that's a bad picture. Terrible. Come on. Yeah. That's not a good picture of and, him. And Poirier just always looks the same in every picture. Yeah, it's neutral. <laughs> Yeah, well, Slightly that's, mean. That's that's how that's how he is. He's just he take that's the approach he takes to the game. I'm actually uh, pretty excited. I mean, it's one of those fan friendly fights. The the Mike Perry Mickey Gall. That's just uh, let's go. I was surprised I at how I'm big of an underdog Gall's like a three to one underdog. I was shocked by that, especially since Mike Perry says that his only corner is going to be his girlfriend for this fight. Yeah, he's trolling people. He's got to be trolling. I don't people. think he is. He put up. How often does he troll he, people? <laughs> I don't know, but lately he put like his one. Remember, he looked like he got into some street fight, and he's sitting there on his social media the other day. Apparently, that was old. I think he just wants to troll people. I think he's into trolling people right now. If his corner is just his girlfriend, like the as soon as that you see that you you've got to put money on Mickey Gall at three to one. Like it's just just based on principle. Yeah, but you can't lose against a, a man who doesn't want to lose in front of his girlfriend. So that might be the extra motivation for Mike Barry to. Go in there and be extra savage. I mean, th- that's a pretty boss move, though. It's like it's just basically to say, I don't need it. I don't need a corner. I don't need any support. Let's I just, fight. I'm just going to fight you. <laughs> Think about it. He probably has fought on the street in the past. He's tough. He doesn't care. He'll go in. To him, it's a, it's a fight. It's fun. It's entertainment. He knows what to do. I mean, he still has that famous uh, little quote that a lot of the fighters bring up when he talks about his corner yelling instructions to him. Come on, Mike, go, Mike, go, push harder. He's like, I'm not ready to go. Stop yelling at me to go. I'll go when I'm ready kind of thing. So, I mean, he's very vocal about his corners and stuff like that. But regardless, I think he he fights. His, his fights are always some of the most exciting. So that's why I'm I'm tuned in. I think the evolution is going to be the key, is to see how much these guys have gotten better since their last fight. Because to me, it doesn't look like Mike Perry is adding that many skills along the way. His striking has, I think, gotten a lot better over the course of uh, of his career in terms of how he's putting combos together, his technical striking. But like, how much has the rest of his game improved? Like, If Gall's able to get it to the ground, is he going to be able to yeah. fend off Gall, whose BJJ is quite good? But what I don't understand, too, with Mickey Gall, why do people always look at him as like this... They write him off all the time. I think Mickey Gall is well-rounded. I think he's pretty solid. I think he can strike his ground. He, you know, I think he's overall really good. But it seems like everyone just calls him out and wants to just kind of beat him up, you know. But he's not that guy that's just going to let you. Yeah, absolutely. He's a tough guy, and I think that he's gotten better and better over the course of his uh, yeah. his career. Um, another guy that's making his debut that I like a lot is Kyle Dawkins. He was on Contender Series last year. He won. I thought that he uh, should have gotten a, a contract at that point in time. He's facing another really good prospect in Brandon Allen. That's that's kind of a sneaky good fight that people should look out for. Uh, Brandon Allen, was he on the Contender Series? He was. He was the LFA champion, and he was on the Contender Series, I think it was either last year or two years ago. And uh, he's, oh, he's a really good fighter. I thought he was recent. I thought he fought the Canadian kid. I thought he fought uh, one of the Parabella guys, no? Brandon Allen? I'm thinking someone else. You no, might maybe be. someone else. Brandon Allen has there was fought a... uh, Tom Breeze. Yeah, he fought, he fought Aaron Jeffrey on Contender Series. That was last Aaron year. Aaron Jeffrey, yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. Because I yeah. remember he fought uh, the, the Parabella kid. Yeah. yeah, so he's he's quite good. I think I think that he's got a really bright future. But I think Dawkins is really high level in terms of his grappling. That's going to be a really fun one because uh, I think both these guys have a really bright future. I wouldn't have put them against each other. I would have put e- each of them against different veterans. Uh, but that's that's uh, yeah. a really fun one. 
Uh, for sure, Tanner Bozer, the Canadian, against uh, Felipe Linz. It's another good one. Yeah, it's I like Tanner Bozer. For a big boy, the way he moves, switches stances, like he has some pretty advanced footwork for a big boy. Yeah, yeah I thought he made for a really sure good account. I thought he made a good account of himself against Cyril Gane. I thought that he looked quite good against Gane over the course of three rounds, hung with him. Yeah, his his he's he's pretty advanced footwork for for a big boy that you really don't see. He almost fights like you know his ability to switch stances. Well, he does he does well. So, I'm, I mean, I just think he's a little bit undersized when he starts fighting the bigger boys. Yeah, absolutely. Or I could be wrong. I mean, he just looks smaller and shorter compared to the other guys. But who knows? Is there anything else from last week's card uh, that we didn't touch on? Blades versus Volkov. I'm trying to think. I would I would have talked about um, I would have. Give a big up to Sean Burgos. That was a fantastic. Oh yeah, we yeah we didn't talk Sean about Burgos. Burgos and, Emmett. Burgos and Emmett. Yeah, that was a really good one. And uh, yeah, you know one thing that I got... was yelling at the TV. Basically, <laughs> how, how did you score that show, one? Like, ah! I was scared. I, I I don't know. Like I thought, like the pressure. I thought Burgos like did better with pressuring. I I don't know. I like Burgos and I know him more, so I'm a kind of a little bit more biased, but even though he took the bigger shots, he was controlling, he was pushing a little bit more. Like if I remember really correctly, I thought I had Burgos, you know, just edging, I thought. Because I mean, I think it was the first, right? I think Burgos would have won the first and I think it came down to the second. Yeah, no, I think I it was think the opposite. Burgos... I think I think the first round, a lot of people thought that uh, Emmett had won, but the second round was pretty clear. Burgos, yeah. if I remember, because I remember Burgos eating the big, bigger shots, but he was kind of controlling more of the fight. So it was kind of like, yeah, he ate the bigger shots, but he kept coming forward even though he ate them. So I remember just that's where my bias, um, knowing Burgos, kind of came in, but. I, regardless, I, I was like literally yelling that every time he took those shots, I could not believe he was still standing. Yeah, he, he's it was got, crazy. He's got one heck of a chair. It was crazy. I had it uh, 28-28 yeah. at the end. I thought I gave Emmett a 10-8 third, and I gave Burgos the first two. Yeah, I remember. I just remember was very surprised when most people thought some friends that uh, Emmett won because he was landing the bigger shots, but I was one of the that uh, Burgos would have got it. And uh, I got to give a shout out to Jillian Robertson and uh, Mark Andre Barrio. We hadn't had a single Canadian win at the Apex. None on Contenders Series. None in any of these cards because uh, Jordan lost and Spencer lost. And then you had two in a row. You had Rob- uh, Robertson win and then Barrio win in the very next fight. So kudos to them. I thought Mark Andre Barrio looked particularly really good um, after oh, losing yeah. three in a row in the UFC. Coming back like that really showed how how much heart that guy has. And he was picking his strikes nice, mixing levels. I, like, I was really impressed. I mean, he doesn't have that, like, when I was watching, he doesn't have that firepower where it comes fast, but, like, it's consistent, it's heavy. Like, he'll wear you down. But, like, if he added a little bit more of that explosive power, like, poof. But he looked dangerous. He, he was select. Like, usually when he had his opponent hurt, like, usually guys just wail out. He was picking his shots, mixing in, like, nice level changes and angles. Like, very impressed. He looked great. This was a card that I wish we would have done our betting segment on because I loved, I loved Austin Hubbard. I loved Justin Janes because I'd heard a lot of really good things about him. And uh, Tisha Torres, I thought, had a really strong advantage over Brianna Van Buren in that fight, and she proved me right. Yeah, and I did... Uh... I picked a, a little parlay to keep me interested, and I was like, Tisha Torres was an underdog in that too. So to me, that She's was a two an to one pick for Tisha. To, yeah, I mean, to me, that was an easy pick. So I was happy. Okay, uh, but what was the rest like? On my parlay, 
my other parts of my parlay, I think I did pretty good. One of them, one of them, I did two parlays. One of them, I lost them all. Okay. All of the favorites lost at one point, and then I won the second parlay that had Tisha Torres on it. I'd have to look back. Well, if you do a, a parlay with Tisha Torres, it probably turned out pretty good because Tisha was like a two to one. Yeah, I did pretty good. Yeah, but I think the other ones were favorites, so it didn't come out too crazy. But still, Tisha Torres, I I knew right off that experience was going to be a difference. The two that stand out to me on this week's card, um, one is Mickey Gall because of the, the circumstances that we discussed, and the other is Kyle Dawkins. And I, I went over kind of both those fights. I think that both of them just have a lot of value on them. Yeah, I'm just trying to see if anyone else pops up. I mean, we have that um, crochet boss. He's been doing all right. I want to see Sean Woodson. I don't know enough about Erosa to be excited about it, but just Woodson himself, I'm excited to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Woodson's quite good. Erosa's been in the UFC a couple times. This is actually, I think, his third stint in the UFC. So uh, good on him for getting back in there. I think that uh, he's a really, uh, a really solid, solid competitor. And your boy Dawkins is a big underdog. Yeah, I think I honestly I think Dawkins is really good. Yeah, and I think Brandon Allen's really good too. I'm not trying to take anything away from Brandon Allen. I just think that's a way, way closer fight than advertised. Hmm. Just trying to see if any of the uh, the fights make sense. Maurice Smith, the big favorite. Maurice Green. I mean, this is the guy who fights you. Oh, so Come Maurice, on. What did I say, Maurice Smith? Yeah, Maurice Smith, former UFC heavyweight you champion. That's it. Come on, Maurice Smith, <laughs> one of the best. Mm-hmm. Another he had one of his uh, one of his finishes I love when he just did his like blasting punches. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Maurice Smith, Hall of Famer, if I'm not mistaken. I think so. Kickboxer yeah. too. I'm, I, I like this. I knew him Yus- from the K1 days. Yusuf Zalal versus uh, Jordan Griffin's another fun one. Yusuf Zalal, I met him, I believe, at the UFC Performance Institute. He's, uh, I think, he's a Factory X guy, if I'm correct. Yusuf is, yes, I think so. I'm- yeah, because I'm pretty sure he corners. Um, uh, there was a kid from Factor X who had the good low kicks last time. Very good low kicks. First fight on the night. Yeah, um, um, always. And he won. Uh, he won by. Low, did he win by low kicks? Phenomenal. Oh, Al- yeah, no, Alex Perez is a California guy. He he won by low kicks. No, 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 no. It was uh, first fight of the night. I know which one you're on, talking uh, about. Uh, yeah, it's but he um. Did ooh, he did one of my favorite fights. Like he just making me crazy. I can't remember his both name. Sides. Yeah, I I, I, had I met a... him and uh, Yusuf the same time. They were together at the UFC Institute. Yeah, I can picture the guy in my head, and I interviewed him recently, and he's managed by Jason House, and I know everything about this guy, but I just I don't remember his name. Yeah, he just can't... <laughs> it's going to drive me nuts, too, because it was such a fantastic fight. Oh, it's driving me nuts yeah. now. Yeah, same with me. You're thinking, that bothers I see me. you thinking. Yeah, the wheels are in it's motion. The yeah. wheels are turning. We're gonna, as soon as we're done, we're going to find out. Yeah, I can look it up now if you'd like. If you can stall some, sure, if you it. can we stall some well. time, let's I can, I can look it up. I stall some time. All right. Well, here. Where could I stall some time? Here, while I look it up, let's I want, see. I want to throw to you because last week I, uh, I spoke about Derek off the top and uh, and how yeah. important Derek was uh, to bazooka kickboxing and uh, I, I had mentioned that there's, you know, I, I can say only so much, but you knew him so well and that when we did the yeah. show this week that you'd be able to talk a little bit about Derek and uh, and how much he meant to the bazooka yeah. team and. And, and to you as a, as a person, he's a guy that you saw every day in your life for like 10, 12 years. Yeah, I mean, so Derek is um, that friendly face that was always entered. Before I took over as Buzuka Kickboxing, it was Ultimate Martial Arts. And he was uh, running the gym since then. So I've known Derek for like 14 years. 
and he was the first person I saw in the gym every day. He was turned in from just the gym manager 15 years ago. And then we became best friends. He managed all my seminars for me. He, he basically ran all of bazooka kickboxing. I mean, from the guys who have come in from the first time, like, I mean, you can ask, you know, him once and they just knew how special of a human being he was. Um, so everyone who came in contact with him loved him from friends all over the world, the community. He did fight ops with glory. So he basically impact the whole kickboxing world, everyone who's ever met him. So my gym, basically, I'm having a just, he was such a big part. I, I didn't know anything about the business because it was all trusted and loved in him. And he's one of the most loved people I know. So it's going to be one of the biggest losses of my life from a business, from friendship, from a brotherhood. Um, we even connected our social and our hobbies together. We're both uh, really into tactical shooting, um, learning to do golf. And we were traveling, doing seminars together on our spare time. So I literally lost a brother and um, it's been one of the hardest two weeks I've probably had to deal with in my life with this Corona, the gym being closed, no glory fights. I lost my best friend's brother about two months ago. Um, so literally 2020 has been the toughest year in my life. So thank you for letting me share that and uh, rest in peace, D. I'll always uh, be representing you here, my man. So Absolutely. Thanks, yeah. Aaron. And he's a, uh... You know, I mentioned last week that he lives on my street. I've seen Derek over the course of years as well, but I obviously didn't know him as well as you did. Uh, it was nice to get to see you and, yeah. and to chat with Derek's son. And uh, like you mentioned, yeah. just like I, I don't think people understand how important Derek was to Canadian mixed martial arts scene over the years. And uh, it's, it's oh yeah, it was nice to see so many people donate to his GoFundMe and uh, and all of that. Oh, beautiful! And the most beautiful thing is people don't even know he was one of the original Canadian apparel guys. So back in the day, even before Tapout started, Derek had a Canadian MMA company called Staredown. And he sponsored guys like Dave Loazzo back in his, you know, TKO UCC run days. So he knew he used to bring the Diaz brothers for seminars. He brought George St. Pierre for seminars. I mean, so he was really big in the community for, for many, many years from the MMA apparel to running gyms to organizing my Bazooka Invitational to fight ops at glory. I mean, he was just loved by everyone. His dream position was always to be the Burt Watson of the UFC. Like, he just loved Burt Watson and, like, just his energy. Like, if you ask anyone about Burt Watson, I don't think anyone says anything bad about him. I've met him once in passing, and I just knew how such a nice, positive person he was with fighters, and that's what Derek wanted to do fight day for fighters, was just make sure everyone was, you know, settled, organized, knew where they wanted to be, had someone to contact, you know, and even during the whole corona where, like, the gym's closed, he just wanted to sit here and kind of make sure everybody was okay during the time. He contacted everyone, made sure memberships and, and everything was set. So uh, one of the biggest losses, uh, I mean, I mean, it's just I realize each day what he did for me and how much a big part of his life. So we're here to celebrate it now. I have to turn the tears into a way to celebrate uh, a special person. Are you doing anything at the gym in terms of uh... – you know, some sort of memorial uh, for, you know, I don't know if you're going to put up a picture or anything along those lines. Yeah, we're going to put up pictures. We're going to, I even wanted, the funny thing is I want to put a little plaque on his desk because it's known as Derek's desk forever. It's going to be Derek's desk. Um, we're going to do an annual, uh, his birthday. His favorite thing was having a gym barbecue. So 
um, mid-July we'll have his barbecue and we're going to continue to do things to kind of, you know, help raise money. Like I'm, I'm all for one of my big goals in the Scarborough community is to help out. I want to kind of be that person because I was a high school teacher and worked with a lot of at-risk kids. And I had one of my high school students um, stabbed and, and was murdered at, uh, you know, Kennedy Station a few years back. And from then I was like, these young kids need martial arts in their lives. And I wanted to create some sort of foundation or help. So my goal is maybe to use Derek's name and his energy and, and to kind of help me run that kind of side of my business, you know, to get more kids into martial arts that are at one thing we need to do yeah for sure i mean if, if you could do a scholarship in his name i'm sure that would be something yeah cool. something like that for mm -hmm. sure i mean I, I could it's for you for me to do seminars and kind of give you know things away to help his son his son kai is you know once it's cool because kai wants to become a doctor intelligent he's a, he's in grade nine doing university courses so we and he wants to be a, a brain doctor so what better person do i need to be a brain doctor than i can get you know kai to help us out so um, we're here for the family, so it'll be a tough one. But the support, like I said, has been just insane. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's long. been great to see, and it, it just goes to show how much of an impact he had on uh, on the community. Uh, well, Joe, it's uh, hard to segue from that. We I do want to get to the interviews, yeah. um, and uh, of course, I want to thank you for for doing this with me. As always, I always appreciate it. I know it's uh, it's been a tough year for you, and I I always appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this. It's uh, it means a lot to me. Yeah. Well, I just thank everybody. Thank you and, and uh, everyone for the support. Bazooka Kickboxing, myself personally, and let's see, let's get a, let's make this year even better. Absolutely. Well, uh, let's let's go to those interviews uh, on this week's card. You've got uh, Dustin Poirier. He'll be facing Dan Hooker. We have both of them on the show, uh, as well as Mickey Gall. Uh, thanks again, Joe. Uh, we'll talk to you again next week, and uh, we'll see you soon, guys. Absolutely. And here's some interviews uh, to to wrap up the show. I'm now joined by Dustin the Diamond Poirier, who's in Las Vegas, Nevada, facing Dan Hooker this weekend. Dustin, how was your trip down to Nevada? Smooth, man. Straight flight, no stops, Florida to Las Vegas, and here we are, fight week. I want to go back to your last fight against Khabib Nurmagomedov. Until you're in there with him, it's probably very difficult to train for that situation. What was it like being in there with him? What was it like to have, um, I guess, one of the greatest in the world wrestling with you and and uh how does that differentiate from what you learned in training you know I, I felt like i was prepared we did a lot of wrestling a lot of wall work um but training and getting under those lights and actually making it happen are two different things and uh you know i was just off that night he was on and uh, like you said one of the best in the world and he implemented his game plan i didn't do a good job at sticking to mine and that's how the fight went now, before we get to Dan Hooker, Justin Gaethje, a previous opponent of yours, is in uh, familiar territory to where you were at. Uh, he's going to be facing Khabib. What do you think he can post for Khabib that Khabib hasn't seen before? I think uh, if, if Justin can stay in the middle of the octagon and use his wrestling abilities and scramble, you know, away from the fence, he'll give Khabib some problems. And obviously, Justin's a big puncher, um, you know, a lot of volume, a lot of power. And I think he can he can, you know, have some some problems, you know, present some problems for Khabib. But if he stays against the fence or gets pushed up against the fence, I think Khabib can out wrestle him against the fence, man. When you look at the lightweight division, there's obviously there's Khabib, there's yourself, 
Tony Ferguson, Gaethje. Where does Dan Hooker fit into that? Like, if you, if you were to, to do lightweight tiers, and that was tier one, is Dan Hooker in tier one, or do you think he's a tier below you guys? Um, we'll find out Saturday night. I mean, he's he's been looking good. He's on a three-fight win streak. He just won a main event, went the distance with a vet. Um, he's definitely on his way up. This is that fight for him. If you know, this is that fight where he gets to the next tier. Uh, if he's successful, but we ain't letting that happen. The aforementioned vet, Paul Felder, a weird stat came out yesterday that in all of Paul Felder's career, his entire professional career, anybody who's beaten him has lost their next fight. Do you read into that at all? Nah, when I was a younger fighter, I used to play into all the superstitions and all the trends and stuff like that, but this is fighting, anything could happen. I'm gonna keep that that stat alive, but this is fighting, man. I don't want to stir up drama, of course, with this Colby Covington situation with ATT, but the one question I do want to ask you about it is just in terms of training. Does, is it a little bit more comfortable at the gym now, knowing that he's not going to walk in at some time? There's going to be discomfort given uh, the different uh, relationships that everybody has with him. Is there like a, a sense of relief at the gym? It's the same. He kind of did his own thing at, at his own times. He didn't train with the normal group classes and stuff. Uh, he had his own schedule, so he wasn't really around a lot these last few months that I've been there. Do you think that his whole shtick ended up being worse for him than, than it, uh, it ended up being better for him? I mean, obviously it helped uh, raise I, his career I, up. I I'm, I'm sure he had limited training partners. Okay, no problem. Let's continue with the, with the dialogue about this weekend against uh, Dan Hooker. What interesting things does Dan Hooker bring to the table in terms of an opponent? Is there, is there anything different that you see from him that you haven't seen from other previous opponents? He's rangy. He's uh, very patient. Doesn't like to brawl a whole lot. Likes to stick to his game plan, it seems. Listens to his coaches. Stays long. And uh, wins. he tries to win rounds, I, I believe. He's, he's got a lot of finishes, but he, he finishes these guys when they get uh, overzealous, when they get away from what they went out there to do. You know, he, he's that, that patient style will draw you in to make you, make you try to hurt the guy and attack, be offensive the whole time, and, and that's where he capitalizes. He also used to be a featherweight that used to really kill himself to make weight. Do you think that right now both of you guys are in the optimal weight class, or I know that you've gotten even bigger. Are you looking potentially at a future at 170? I know you're focused on the here and now, but is that something that you could always do? Look at these things, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna go to one. I'm gonna finish my career at 170. Um, uh, I'm just, I feel like I'm outgrowing 55. The, the cut isn't easy, and we'll see. I, I have definitely have a few fights at 55 left, but I'll end up fighting at 170. What did you walk around that when you were at featherweight versus now? Not a whole lot different, honestly. I uh, I used to get heavier when I was a featherweight. 190, I would balloon up to yeah. 190. Wow. A couple months after a fight. So I I mean I don't mean to get too personal here, but what was the craziest cut you ever made to featherweight? The biggest in amount in the amount of uh, showing up fight week would be when I fought Cub Swanson in in London. I showed up. Uh, of course, I was drinking a lot of water and stuff. I was 176 pounds, and I made the 146 limit that same week. That that's unbelievable. So, what did you walk into the cage at on that particular night? I was I was like 176 whenever we fought, but I felt it. You know, I was too much water. I felt flat-footed and kind of bloated, 
It, it wasn't, that's not good for you, man. Well, it's crazy that the human body can even do that. Yeah, I don't want to do it again. Yeah, I know we we've been over this before. I've asked you about 145 in the past, and you look at me like I'm like I'm a crazy person. But uh, never, so 170. Do you have any sort of timetable for that? When you never, sorry, go ahead, Dustin. See, I'll never fight at 145 pounds ever again. I can't. Yeah, we're discussing 170 now, though. In terms of finishing out your career, do you have a timetable for when you think you might make that move? We'll see. Uh, no clue. I, I don't look into it that much because I've been in camp for a fight at 155 pounds. And obviously, with the win on Saturday, I'm right back where I belong in the mix. So I have a few fights left here. There's some business that needs to get done here before I move. All right, one final question for you. This past weekend, uh, a prospect by the name of Max Roscoff, there was a situation with him where his, he was telling his coaches he was done, and his coaches were trying to urge him to get back in there for the third round. Uh, what did you take away from that, and what's your opinion on what happened? I, I don't know their relationship, first of all. I don't know how much their coach knows the guy or how, you know, how many years they've been together, but it looked bad to me. Uh, as a fan from the outside, not knowing anything about either one of the guys, it looked like he didn't want to fight, and his coach was talking him, you know, back into the fight or trying to, which is dangerous, you know. This is a very dangerous thing we do, and if you don't want to fight, you shouldn't fight, period. All right, Dustin, well, I always appreciate your time, but, and I appreciate what you're doing for your local community. That, and uh, oh, Sorry, go ahead. Going back to that, like I'm saying about their relationship, you know, I've been around emotional fighters as well, uh, in corners, through training camps. You know, what if the guy's like that during sparring sessions? He sits down between rounds, is like, you know, I'm not doing well. I, you know, I don't know with their relationship. Everybody's different, but but like I said, from from a fan's perspective, it looked bad watching it. All right, Dustin, well, thanks for this. And I also want to commend you on what you're doing for your local community this weekend. You always pick a different cause. And uh, given the coronavirus and how much local businesses are struggling, you're giving back to your hometown of Lafayette, Louisiana, and paying for uh, an entire restaurant to enjoy your fight and, and to build, rebuild that community uh, given the time in quarantine. So kudos to you for that. Thank you so much. Yeah, we've, uh, this fight kind of came together quickly. And obviously with the quarantine, we, we did meals for hospitals and, and first responders of the medical service. And we wanted to put something together for fight night. So we decided to do a locally owned small business to pay for the meals. And, um, you know, in, in a crazy time like this, give somebody a common, give a bunch of people a common ground to come in and talk, um, you know, just bring, bring the community together a little bit and also give people free meals and boost the, the small business. So we're just trying to do do everything we can, but we have some big things uh, in the works for after this fight. We have a big back to school drive. And also, as soon as things clear up, we're planning to do a start an annual Unity 5K in Lafayette, Louisiana. And uh, I'll have more info released on that soon, but it's just a crazy time. We can't plan too far ahead because no telling how long we'll be social distancing. Well, uh, you're an incredible example in the sport, and uh, I hope a lot more people follow your lead. It's, uh, it's fantastic to see. And uh, again, I really appreciate your time, and best of luck this Saturday. Thank you, man. I'm now joined by the hangman, Dan Hooker. Dan, how was your flight over to uh, America? I know that it's quite the flight from New Zealand. 
it's not too bad. Not too bad. It's 12 hours to LA and then another hour uh, to jump over to Vegas. So uh, you get used to it coming from New Zealand. Absolutely. Well, I'm curious, what's the protocol for you when you're going home? I mean, New Zealand has not had uh, many coronavirus cases. I know they had a couple because there were some women from the UK came over and, and a, there were a couple of isolated cases. What kind of protocol are they putting you through when you actually head back? Yeah, so, yeah, there are a couple of cases. New Zealand was COVID-free. We had a couple of cases, but they, they hold them all at the border. We have, um, so when I go back, uh, I get whisked away straight onto a bus and then taken away to a lockdown hotel and we stay there for two weeks so me and my team have to stay there for 14 days uh, in a quarantine while they while they test us and check us and make sure we don't have uh COVID before they release us back that's uh, an interesting situation i guess because you're going to be in the same sort of place as your family but you won't be able to see them is, is that something that uh, you and your wife have discussed i know you have a young daughter at home yeah, well, they opened up. Uh, they actually opened up a couple of facilities outside of Auckland where we live. So we might not even, you know, it's all up in the air. We might not even be in the in the in the city where I'm from. So it'll be definitely interesting times. But um, for New Zealand, especially, I don't see this going anywhere anytime soon. I think um, people are going to have to do this 14-day quarantine and 14-day um, isolation for at least the next year. So. You know, I could sit and wait until it went, but um, I feel like I need to get out there and um, make some money and provide for my family. How did New Zealand get this so under control? They've got such great leadership over there. Uh, well, it's just our isolation. It's a, it's one of the biggest benefits of being from New Zealand. We're in a small island in the bottom corner of the South Pacific, so that's like a big hand. Um, I think we're the 64th or 65th country to um, get coronavirus, so we had a lot of heads up. Just just our geographic location makes it a makes it a lot easier to to get on top of this kind of thing. So you know we're not you know like the U.S. or or a European country where it's very difficult to close our borders. Um, once we stop flights coming in and quarantine incoming travelers, it becomes pretty easy to um, to stop it coming. Well, last question I'll ask about this particular topic. When you come into Las Vegas, you see all the casinos are, are back uh, back going, at least a lot of them are. Uh, what's, what's your take on that, knowing uh, how much New Zealand had to lock down? Oh, well, it's just funny, because in New Zealand, we went from like a level four lockdown, which is everyone had to stay in their homes and stay with the people that they live with, and you were only allowed out to go and get groceries, and you had to wear, you know, it was, it was incredibly strict. But then once we cleared it all off, um, New Zealand got back to you, uh, back to normal. Gyms are open again for the last four or five weeks before I come. Gyms are operating as normal. Um, everyone's handshaking and kissing on the cheek and everything's getting back to usual. So then coming on a plane, going through LA where everyone was still pretty strict at the um, LA airport, everyone has masks and gloves and keeping social distance. But yeah, when we got to Vegas, she's uh, Vegas. <laughs> so, uh, different story entirely. It's pretty much back to usual. There weren't um, too many masks, and people walk in the streets and and living life, um, living life. It's certainly a, an interesting time right now. Obviously, uh, how much did that help you having the ability to just train with no problems in the last couple of weeks? Um, you know, with with no barriers in preparation for this particular fight. 
yeah, like my, you know, my camp was, um, you know, two sides, two sides of the coin. Like it was one extreme to the other. The first part of the camp was done um, in level four lockdown. So that means you had to stay in, um, stay in with only the people that you live with. So I live with my wife and I live with my daughter and I wasn't allowed to go to the gym and I wasn't even allowed to travel um, outside of my immediate area for exercise. There's a few, you know, good running tracks around the city, but they're outside of my local area. So I had to make do with, with what was in, um, in arm's reach, as you would say, for, for me in terms of staying fit. But then once our restrictions started, started getting lifted, things got back to normal fairly quickly. So I've done, you know, uh, yeah, half of my camp has been locked down and incredibly restricted. And the second half has been open and, and free and uh, back to usual. Uh, but yeah, I'm not too sure what what Dustin's camp has been like. It seems like there's like uh, been some mild restrictions for um, these guys the entire time. So they've been kind of training at like a mild pace where I've gone, you know, one extreme to the other. So we'll, we'll see. We're going to find out Saturday night um, which way uh, who, who, you know, had the better training camp. Do you feel like you're getting Dustin Poirier at a good time coming off that loss to Khabib? Um, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. That's not how I would view it. I see a lot of similarities between me and Dustin um, in terms of personality. And if there's one thing that I wouldn't want to do is fight me coming off a loss. Um, nothing, nothing sets a fire in a man like like a loss especially for for a world title because i can imagine myself in that in that position being that close to what we all want and you know and having not going your way that just really wouldn't sit right with me and i'd, I'd need to get that back and i need to make amends um for that so i know he's going to come in hot and he's going to come in um incredibly motivated now, I hate to bring this statistic up, and I hope that you're not a superstitious type, but every person that has beaten Paul Felder has gone on to lose their next fight. Are you looking forward to being the person that breaks that streak? Yeah, oh, well, good thing I'm not superstitious um, whatsoever. But <laughs> that's a funny stat. Like, I definitely, I can understand why. I can understand why that man is a, um, you know, he he gets in he gets in wars, man. He can he can dish it out. He can take it um, incredibly well, and it just shows, you know, the kind of damage that he can put on a man's body. So, you know, blessing in disguise that this fight probably got pushed back a little more, had a little more time for my body to get back to a hundred percent. Now, I personally scored that last fight for you. I know that there has been some debate as to who won that last fight, but do you dislike that? Do you li do you dislike the fact that people question a win because it's a close decision? Uh, it's an interesting. Um, I've, I've never won a split decision before, so there was um, it was just it was just something new to me. You know, most of my fights have been um, via stoppage, so stoppage. There's there's no doubt whatsoever uh, who got the job done, but. I guess it's just something you come to terms with. When when you start fighting, you know, these elite guys, then then the gap or, or you know, um, the holes in their game or the difference between skill becomes a lot smaller. So these fights do do become a lot closer as the as the skill level rises. But I it, 
it doesn't get to me because I know I won because I I went back and I watched that fight ten times, fifteen times, and I don't see how he won. And and because scoring and and people watching fights is so, um, you know, a lot of it comes down to to your own interpretation of judging criteria. So that that definitely adds to it. So you know you can make definitely make a case if you wanted to. You know what I mean? But I feel like most of those people they didn't even really study the fight or, or didn't truly truly watch the fight and understand um, what was going on and how it was playing out. Well, Dan, I really appreciate your time. Uh, best of luck this weekend. Break that streak that uh, that that Paul Felder has put out there. Uh, we appreciate you your time. Not, you, and uh, you better not to speak with jinx you again. me. You better not jinx me, Aaron. <laughs> don't, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just I'm just relaying the stat. <laughs> uh, no worries. Thank you. All right. I'm glad you're not superstitious, Dan. And <laughs> we nah, wish you the definitely. best of luck. <laughs> Cheers, Aaron. <laughs> Cheers, man. Thank you. All right, I'm pleased to be joined now by New Jersey's own Mickey Gall. Mickey, you're out in Las Vegas, Nevada. An interesting fight against Mike Perry uh, this weekend. What do you think about Mike? I mean, he certainly has some odd uh, tactics he has going into this fight. Yeah, man, Mike's a character. Um, you know, I've been telling everyone. I've been telling them the truth. I'm a low-key Mike Perry fan. Uh, I think the dude's. He's, I think he's a fun fighter. I think he's, you know, he comes to fight. He's violent. He brings it. Uh, I don't think he's that smart. And... You know, I, I know I'm going to get get him out of there, find a way to finish him within that 15 minutes. 15 minutes is too long for him to spend in, in there with me. That's too much time for me. Well, the, the biggest thing that's happened with him in recent weeks is that his girlfriend apparently is going to be his only corner for this particular fight. He says he doesn't need yeah. a team. He, does, he just wants to rely on instincts alone. Uh, what do you think of that move? I mean, it's unorthodox, but so, of course, is Mike. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know what to make of that move. I, I'm not looking too much into it. You know, I'm going to expect the best version of him. Uh, I'm going to expect an evolved version, even though it appears he, he seems to regress in some of his last fights. Uh, I'm going to expect maybe this did do something good for him. Whatever. It doesn't matter. I, I know what I've been doing. I've been training with a team. I'm proud of my team. I love my team. I have a great team. Ah, and, and I, you know, I, I feel like I'm peaking. I'm coming in there, you know, the best version of me, and that's all I can control. Until we're in there, then I'll be able to control him physically. But right now, I can just control myself. So, you know, I'm just doing my thing. Well, you mentioned that, and I think that's an interesting point, because I mentioned this to my co-host earlier today, uh, Joe Valtellini, who uh, does Color for Glory. I said, this is going to be a fight. Oh, yeah, legend. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I said, this is going to be a matter of evolution. I mean, Mickey seems to be getting better and better with every fight. And as you mentioned with Mike, it seems like he's only making incremental improvements. Would you agree with that assessment? I would agree with that assessment. A hundred percent. I that's, that's exactly what I said. I, you know, there was a time when, when we fought on the same card. Uh, the last time I was a co-main event when I fought Sage and he fought Alan Joban and he was coming in there hot, like kind of hot, like undefeated. Uh, he he lost that night, and you know I, I think at that point, that's a, that's a tough fight for me. That Mike Perry then, that's a tough fight for me. But now, no, now I have too many ways to beat him. I have, too many, I have too many ways to beat him. I, I'm bigger. I'm stronger. I've gotten better, and he, I don't think he's gotten better. I do not. I, I don't. But I'm, I'm, I've been training as if, as if he is. I've been training as if, you know, he's doubled up his skills. Uh, 
you know, so yeah. You notoriously got to the UFC by calling out CM Punk. Obviously, Ron Dana White looking for a fight. Um, how much do you think that fast-tracked you getting to the UFC? How long do you think it would have taken had you not called out CM Punk on that very I, night? You said, how much did it fast-track me? It fast-tracked me the most. It fast-tracked <laughs> me. That's all it did was... It, fast, it fast-tracked me is exactly what it did. I was I was in the UFC as, at 1-0. I, I should you know I should have fought uh, on the regional scene until I was like 7-8-0. and eight and, and I probably would have got in there like last year or something. But I, but I didn't. And I, I'm, I'm so happy with the way that it's gone. If anyone can handle it, it's me. If anyone can handle it, it's me. It's a, it's, it's a crazy thing. But if anyone can handle it, it's me. I have the work ethic. I have the belief. Uh, belief. I have the skill. You know, I, I can, I'm, you know, I'm comfortable. I'm intelligent. I know, you know, I, uh, I, I know I can, I can swim here I, and I, I can thrive here. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm happy to have my whole career under a microscope. I think it's going to make for a way hell of a cooler story by the time my career is done. My whole career in the UFC, except for one fight, one regional. Dana White will be at basically all my fights of my career. It's amazing. I'm living a dream, dude. I'm the co-main event of the UFC. I'm excited. I feel great. You know, like I know some guys like be coming here and be talking like, big. Uh, I got to do this. You know, gonna go earn that paycheck. I'm like, fuck that. I get, I get to be here. I, I get to be doing this. I'm, li- I'm living my dream, bro. It's pretty unbelievable because I feel like that part of your story isn't given enough credit or, or enough shine. Coming into the UFC at 1-0 is the epitome of a position where you would crash and burn. And you've managed to continue to maintain your success at the highest level and get better and better. You are, I guess, a special individual for that reason. Thank you. Yeah, I, and I don't even think I've, you know, I don't think I've shown, I don't think I've shown my true self in there. I think from, from my money, I think I've underperformed. In my fights in the past, uh, there's not really one fight. You know, maybe the maybe you say the CM Punk fight, but that was like a role. You know, I, I that because I was perfect. But you know, I haven't I haven't reached perfection in there, and I, I don't necessarily expect to, but I want to. And I, you know, I I, I think, you know, I I know I'll be a champion in time. Uh, I you know I've been I've been blessed by with this you know unique situation, and and I know I'm gonna I'm gonna make the most of it. Another individual who probably could have used a little bit more time on the regional scene was Max Rosekopf, who this past weekend was actually a two-to-one favorite against his opponent. Uh, and we saw what happened in the corner. He was saying, you know, I'm, I'm done, I'm done, and his coach kept trying to push him uh, to continue fighting. What was your take on that when you saw it? I felt bad for the kid. I felt bad for the kid. Uh, you know, that's how I felt. Um, I, that's, that's, all, that's all I'm going to say on it. I, all I'm going to say is I felt bad for the kid, and you'll never hear me saying, call it. Never. I never. Now, I was saying to, again, to Joe earlier that his coach, I don't think, did him a disservice. He took a minute. He was trying to get him back, you know, refocus. He was trying to motivate him to get back in there. It wasn't like he was taking an epic beating or anything along those lines. And then once that minute elapsed, he said to the the official, he doesn't want to continue. So I don't really blame his corner for trying to to push him to go back out there. Uh, do Do you have the same opinion? Yeah, I don't blame I don't blame them either. I think they had I think they had belief in their guy. Um, like I said, I felt bad that the kid was put in that spot and was, you know, mentally, you know, he was probably you know a little physically, a little mentally broken. Uh, and I, I think he'll learn from this. And if, if he if he doesn't let it destroy him, it'll light a fire under his ass, and he, he can still be great. Or maybe he doesn't like this shit, and he find and he found that out now. I, I don't know. That's up to Max. Uh, so I don't want to say anything. You know, degrading about him. I don't know him personally. 
I, I don't I don't really have any that you know I don't have anything degrading to say about him. I think the I, you know if I if I was I, I corner a lot of my guys too, and if I if I knew my guy had to, had to win and maybe was just you know mentally not there, I, I would tell him the same thing too. I was like, no, I'd be I'd be like, no, f that, go back, get back in there. You can do this. You know, you, there's always there's always ways to win. That's the beautiful thing about this sport. Is there's so many ways to win. You know, uh, there's a lot of ways to lose too. Uh, but you know, there's always, there's always more ways to win. What do you think a win over Mike Perry would do for you this weekend? I mean, Mike's talking about it as if this is a slam dunk for him. Uh, obviously, we've seen what you can do out there. You obviously begged to differ with that assessment, I'm sure. But what would a win over him in, in a big spot like this do for you? I don't really know. I don't know. It make me happy. It's gonna make me happy. Uh, this, this is what I want. I just, I hope, you know. Fingers crossed, no one's got COVID. I just want the fight to happen. I just want to get in there and, and do what I love. Uh, you know, it's it's been it's been since August since I've gotten a fight. I had like three or four fights fall fall apart. It's been kind of a crazy, you know, with all this Corona stuff, it's been a crazy year. Um, I'm just excited, man. Like I said, I'm I'm living my dream. Uh, I'm not looking past. Uh, I'm not looking past him at all. I'm I'm uh, hyper focused on the 27th. But yeah, I you know if. if to answer your question, I don't know. I probably get another nice, exciting name like him and beat him too, and then I'm probably near the top 15. You mentioned not being able to fight since last August. How much does that hurt in terms of your career trajectory? I mean, there's there's no uh, replacement for that sort of in cage experience. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, but I don't. I don't think it's going to hurt me long term at all. I'm here now, uh, and I've been doing all the right things. I'm not one of those guys who, you know, gets fat and, uh, you know, go doesn't train i train year-round i'm a year-round athlete um i'm, I'm improving my skills all the time improve prove myself as a martial artist there's, there's it's so endless there's so many things i can get like i said there's so many ways to win there's so many way, things you can work on so i'm you know i get i'll get obsessed with this for a, a month then i'm obsessed with this for a month and i'm all you know always with the goal of improving my game improving my game improving my game um so I don't think any, nothing changed. You know, I, I, I still, my trajectory is to the top to be a champion. And I, I this, you know, not fighting since August isn't going to change that. I've been next to you. You're a pretty big guy for the division. Is, is the weight cut tough for you to 170? Um, it, had, it, it had been in the past. But I, I would say, you, you know, like, like again, I was a 1-0 fighter in the UFC. You know, I, I screwed up my weight cut a couple of times. I've passed out at weight cuts, being too tough for my own good. And I've, and I've had shitty performances the next day. I, you know, I, I gave myself kidney failure before I fought Diego Sanchez. Trying to, because, you know, I was just, I'm a, I was a kid learning. But now, you know, I've, I've learned a lot from all this stuff that, you know, what you're supposed to do with, with your failures. And, uh, you know, now I, feel, now I feel great. I think it's going to be my best, easiest weight cut ever. I'm, you know, I, you look at me, I'm lean. You know, I, I'm mean. I'm, I'm ready to go. I, I, uh, I don't think this is going to be a hard weight cut. Um, and it's, it was just, it's just learning. It's just, you know, just learning my body, learning, uh, what's, you know, learning, you know, like just, ha just how to do it and how to do it better. And every time I'm gonna probably think I didn't know shit the last time, but now I know. You know what I mean? So, you know, this is my ninth time, uh, cutting the weight to get in there for a fight, and I, I think this is gonna be the best one yet. I know, I know this is gonna be the best one yet. You mentioned um, that you were one to know. You were young when you got into the UFC. Has your body changed since then? Like, have you gotten naturally bigger? Yeah, yeah, all around. I, I've been doing, you know, I, I've been doing a lot of, you know, just not besides for the 
all the martial arts training, which I'm doing every day, uh, you know, jiu-jitsu, Muay Thai, boxing, wrestling. Um, I, I work with pro- like one of the best, probably the best strength coach in the world, uh, Joe DeFranco. Um, you know, he's he he has like he has like three clients. It's like me, Triple H, the wrestler, and and uh, Jeff Sika. It's it's you know what I mean. Like he, I get I get a lot of attention from him, and he's gotten he's gotten me so much fucking stronger. I've gotten so much stronger. I would ragdoll that kid who came into UFC. I wanted enough. Uh, I you know so yeah I, my body's changed a lot it's uh changed for the better um you know just smart training hard training and uh you know uh Joe DeFranco's helped me a lot well we certainly look forward to seeing your continued growth in the sport and uh best of luck this weekend against Mike Perry uh, really appreciate your time and uh, again thanks for doing this thank you very much I appreciate you <laughs>